Our scripture reading this morning comes from Mark, the 14th chapter, verses 17 through 26. Hear now the word of our Lord. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of God. May it find its way into our hearts and lives this morning by the power of His Holy Spirit. Amen. So, I'm going to make a confession. I study the Bible and keep up with biblical archaeology. I know in my head what the Last Supper probably looked like. See, the people in attendance were in a second floor of a small inn. The room was cramped and dimly lit. Jesus and his disciples were probably laying on their sides as they ate at the table. And the table was probably pretty low to the ground. I know all of that. But when I close my eyes and try to picture the Last Supper, this is what I see. I can't help it. It's etched in my mind. Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. It's an iconic work of art, isn't it? It has that impressive perspective, that classical balance. And you look at the faces, you see all that deep psychological insight. It's a work of art and has truly stood the test of time. But whenever I look at this painting, one question always pops into my mind. How long is that table? I mean, look at that thing. That is one impressive table. Now, it's hard to tell because of the tablecloth, but, but look at the legs. That's solid wood right there. Now, I know what you're thinking, but you're wrong. These aren't two fellowship hall tables that have been smushed together. See, look close. There's no crack in the middle that would make Jesus' plate wobble. I hate that crack in the middle, by the way. No. This is one long, impressively built table. Look at it. It's able to comfortably seat 13 grown men on one side. Look, they're all facing the same way. You know, like some one of those... Uh, uh, sitcom families on TGIF back in the day. They still have room for 10 more people at least around that table. Look at it. Jesus was a carpenter. 
You think he built it? Probably not. Look at that thing. It barely fits in the upper room. If you wanted it out of the way, you'd need all 12 of them to move that thing. And you couldn't flip it up against the wall. It would be taller than the wall is. You'd have to kind of lean it at an angle. How are you supposed to guide it up there anyway? No way that thing came up the stairs. They must have built it in there. How long is that table? Now, that might seem like a silly thing to obsess over, <laughs> and it is, but I believe that's the question before us this morning. How long is the table? You know, metaphorically, spiritually, as a church, how long is our table? How many people can it accommodate? Or put another way, where does our fellowship end? Who is welcome and who is not? This is the question I believe that faces us as a church this morning. How long is our table? Last May, delegates from across the global United Methodist Church were supposed to get together for a general conference in Minneapolis. I'm sure you're aware, one of the big issues that was set to be addressed was the splitting of the denomination of our theological differences around the issue of human sexuality. Only it didn't happen. Like so many things last spring, it had to be postponed. Now, a few weeks ago, word went out the general conference would be postponed yet again this year. The reason being that our brothers and sisters in Christ from around the globe wouldn't be able to travel to attend. Now, in the United Methodist clergy world, you could hear a collective groan. On the UMC clergy Facebook group, the usual camps began arguing almost immediately. Liberals and conservatives who have been waiting patiently for a year to go off and start their own denominations are going to have to wait another year. We keep trying to separate, but events keep getting in the way. It's almost like this isn't God's plan or something. But it seems we can't wait to be rid of one another. It seems we've decided our table of fellowship just isn't long enough for the people on the other side of the issue. So there are those that feel that these issues around human sexuality are the be-all and end-all of whether we are a Bible-believing church. And there are those that feel just as passionately that, that, that this issue is the be-all and end-all of whether we are a compassionate church. And everyone's got their heels dug in. There's so much at stake, they say. No compromise is good enough. This issue is simply too divisive. Then, there are those that have decided that the table of our fellowship is not long enough to accommodate both liberals and conservatives, both snowflakes and deplorables, both red hats and rainbow flags. There are those who have decided we're better off finding our own smaller tables. But what say you? How long is our table? How many does it seat? Where does our fellowship end?
The historian Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote a book several years ago about Abraham Lincoln's cabinet. She called the book Team of Rivals. Now, I'm not sure there's a better description for Jesus' disciples, Team of Rivals. If ever there was a, dis a more dysfunctional group of misfits, this was it. You start with a man like Peter. Peter is a very deeply Jewish man. He's proud of his Jewish heritage. He's most comfortable going by his Hebrew name, Simon. And he's deeply uncomfortable, he's deeply uncomfortable being in the same room as non-Jews. His Gentile prejudice is well known. Later in the book of Acts, Peter will have to have a miraculous vision to convince him to even set foot in a Gentile's house. In his mind, Gentiles are unclean, not to be associated with. He's sitting at the same table as a man named Philip. Philip is a man who, if he has a Hebrew name, no one knows it. And Philip is super comfortable talking to Greek people. In John's Gospel, when some Gentiles want to meet Jesus, they approach Philip first, probably because he speaks Greek and he's welcoming to them. In fact, tradition says that Philip went to Greece as a missionary after the Great Commission. See, Peter must have looked at Philip and seen a worldly man, someone who turned his back on his own culture. And Philip must have looked at Peter and saw a closed-minded bigot. Then you have Levi, the former tax collector. Levi was a highly literate man. He would eventually go on to write the Gospel of Matthew. What did he have in common with these illiterate fishermen? I wonder if Levi rolled his eyes every time one of these country bumpkins had to have a parable explained to them. He probably thought to himself, it's a metaphor, read a book every once in a while, right? Now, if Levi thought his fellow disciples were hicks, they probably thought he was an elitist snob. They also hated him because he used to be a tax collector, especially Simon the Zealot. Now, we don't know much about Simon the Zealot except that he was, well, a zealot. A zealot is someone who supported a violent overthrow of the government. <laughs> this is a storm the capital type, right? He saw the Romans as oppressors who had no right to be in Jerusalem, and he was hoping that Jesus would raise an army and chase them off and anyone who had ever helped them. He despised men like Levi, tax collectors who betrayed their fellow Israelites by working for Rome. You know who wasn't a zealot? Andrew. Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist before joining up with Jesus. See, he believed that Israel's problem was fundamentally spiritual in nature and that it would be solved through repentance and holiness, not through violence and bloodshed. Andrew was hoping that Jesus would lead a religious revival, not a political revolution. Andrew and Simon's deeply different religious views were a recipe for division. And this is to say nothing of James and John, two competitive brothers jockeying for position in Jesus' inner circle. Or Mary from Magdala. No one knew what to make of her and her scandalous former life as a prostitute. 
or Judas Iscariot, who would soon betray them all. That this team of rivals was able to eat together was nothing short of a miracle. But that's exactly the point, isn't it? Christian unity is and has always been a miracle. There's something about the presence of Jesus in the midst of our division and acrimony that brings peace and healing. Only he could take this team of rivals and make a table of disciples. For Jesus, the table of fellowship was the model of what God's kingdom was supposed to be like. In his parables, he talked about the kingdom of God being like a banquet where the first were last and the last were first, where the poor, the blind, and the lame parading in before the invited guests, you know, all those worthy religious folks with the correct theology. Jesus modeled this too. Jesus ate with tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. That was an incredible statement back then. To say that God's table of fellowship was long enough for the dregs of society. But I think we often overlook the equally remarkable fact that Jesus ate with Pharisees. Pharisees. These were, were Jesus' personal and political enemies. But the table of his fellowship was long enough for them as well. In a world that had all kinds of rules about who was allowed to eat with who and why, Jesus broke every norm. He wanted everyone to understand that the kingdom of God was a great banquet with a table long enough to accommodate everybody. And here at this Last Supper, Jesus is driving the message home. Because at the table, he offers his disciples his own body and blood, his own sacrificial love, broken and poured out. And no one at that table deserves to be there. Jesus knows full well that they will all fall away. He tells them as much several verses later. He knows that they will deny him and betray him. That they will flee at the first sign of trouble. That they will run and cower in their corners. No one at that table deserved what Jesus is offering, but Jesus offers it anyway. See, they are welcome at Jesus' table, not because of who they are, but because of who he is. Because in Jesus Christ, the love of God is broken and poured out. And because of that, we can be more than we are. All of us rivals, cowards, and backstabbers who dare call ourselves followers of Jesus can be transformed. We can be a table of disciples, a church, not because of who we are, because of who Jesus is. Next year, Nora will start looking at colleges, and it makes me nervous. As I think back to my own college years, 
like a lot of people, I went through a rebellious phase in college. I'm ashamed to admit it, but I experimented pretty heavily with Roman Catholicism. That's, that's a joke. Actually, I'm not ashamed of the role Catholicism played in my spiritual journey. See, growing up, my mother was the principal at a small Catholic school called Our Lady of the Mountains. I had a lot of positive role models who were devout Catholics. I was always sort of attracted to the beauty of the liturgy. You know, the stained glass windows, the quiet prayers. There was something about it all that seemed so ancient and sacred, so mysterious. Now, my fascination with Catholicism came to a head in college. I was working for a summer at a community center in the Redbird Missionary Conference. And despite it being a Methodist ministry, almost everyone I worked with was Catholic. So, on Sunday mornings, rather than going to a Methodist church alone, I decided to go to the Catholic church with my friends. Now, when the time came for communion, I would always walk up with my arms crossed over my chest. This was to show that I wasn't a member of the church, because those who aren't Catholic aren't supposed to receive the body and blood of Christ. Now, the priest, a kind man named Father Robert, would always smile and he'd bless me by making the sign of the cross over my forehead. That's another thing I liked about Catholicism. You got to make the sign of the cross a lot. Now, Father Robert could see that I was genuinely searching and he met with me several times to answer my questions. There was so much I loved about the Catholic Church. Its focus on outreach, its rich history, all the great thinkers and theologians that it's produced. But in the end, I couldn't convert. There was one issue that I just couldn't get past. It wasn't the saints and all the Mary stuff, though that is a little weird to me. It wasn't the scandals in the newspaper, though I found those troubling. It wasn't even the celibate priesthood, which, given my current profession, seems like I've dodged a bullet there. No. The reason I couldn't be Catholic was Holy Communion. See, in the end, I just couldn't join up with the church that didn't believe that the Lord's table was long enough for everybody to sit at. See, in the Catholic Church, you have to be a member to receive the body and blood of Christ. If you're a Protestant, or even if you're a Catholic, but your priest judges that you're in a state of mortal sin, you're outside of the fellowship. You can't take communion. You can't receive the body and blood of Christ. And I just couldn't get on board with this, no matter how much I wanted to. And it wasn't for my sake. I would have been happy to convert and be a part of the fellowship. But then I would never be able to take communion with my parents or with my friends who weren't Catholic. I would be saying that Jesus was meant for me and not for them. And in my heart of hearts, I believed that Jesus was meant for everybody. I believed that then and I believe it now. That's the reason that I have stayed a United Methodist all these years, and I currently have no plans on being anything else. See, in the Methodist Church, we practice open communion. 
That means that anyone who walks through our doors is able to take communion with us, whether they're Methodist or not, whether they share our theology or not, whether they are sinners or not. We don't ask you to be a certain age or to take a class first. Because you belong at this table before you understand what it means to belong at this table. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, who you voted for, what you've marched for or against, what language you pray in, none of that matters. Our fellowship is open to everybody, all creeds and races. If you accept the invitation to sit and eat with us, then we believe the table is long enough for you. Our founder, John Wesley, said we need not think alike to love alike. This idea has resulted in a beautifully diverse and global church. There are United Methodist churches on every continent because a table this long knows no borders. In our own country, the United Methodist Church is one of the most politically diverse of all the major denominations. Consistently, surveys show that the other major denominations are becoming more politically homogenous. You know, Baptists are becoming more conservative and Episcopalians are becoming more liberal. But the United Methodist Church has stubbornly remained more or less a 50-50 church. What if our greatest strength is the very thing that is threatening to tear us apart? That in an age of polarization, we have so far not allowed ourselves to be divided. That we've continued to make space for those who see the world in a radically different way than we do. What if that's who we are, who we're called to be? So we seem so desperate to rid ourselves of one another. But what if that's not God's plan for the United Methodist Church? What if we could be one of the last institutions where the center holds? What if we could show a broken and divided nation the way forward by our example? I'm not ready to give up on that. I'm sorry. I'm not. I believe the table is still long enough for both of us. All of us. That's why I remain a United Methodist after all these years and have no plans on being anything else. Do you know why we practice open communion? It's because we believe that this table is not our table to begin with. It's the Lord's table. Because it's the Lord's table, I don't get to decide who sits at the table. And neither do you. Neither do any of us. Jesus decides who is welcome here. And his body was given and his blood was poured out for everybody. In a few minutes, I'll say as much as, as we bless the bread and the juice. I'm going to say, this is not my table. It is not the table of the United Methodist Church. It is the Lord's table. And as such, it is open to all who truly and earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live a life in communion with God and with one another. We are not welcome to the table because of who we are. We are welcomed because of who Jesus is.
That's what open communion means. It's Jesus' table, not my table. So I don't get to decide how long it is. Jesus decided it's long enough. If Jesus' table was long enough for Peter and Philip, James and John, Simon the Zealot and Levi, the tax collector, if it's long enough for Mary Magdalene and Judas Iscariot, it's long enough for me and for you. All of us weak-kneed cowards who dare to call ourselves his disciples. This table stretches around the world and across eternity, and it is as long and wide as the love of God. And that is good news. See, I desperately need this table to be long enough to include the likes of you, because that's the only way I know that it's long enough to include the likes of me. My prayer is, is that as United Methodist, as Christians, we won't give up on one another. We won't let our table be divided because it's not our table. It's the Lord's table. That's what I believe anyway. I believe that open communion is not just something we do on the first Sunday of every month. It's central to who we are. We are an open communion. I believe the Lord's table is long enough for everybody who have followed Jesus with us. We have no right to make it any shorter. That's what I believe. But what say you? How long is our table? How many does it seat? Just where does our fellowship end? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.